In Western media, and perhaps from just a Western perspective, we tend to assume that the government has so much control over all of its businesses in China, when in actuality, we're not giving much agency to the actual entrepreneurs themselves. It's hot space summer here at China Talk. I recorded a good number of space-related podcasts that I'll be running over the next few weeks. Hope you enjoy. Also, I'm going to be in Milan, Florence, and Rome over the next few weeks. If you want to meet up, just send me an email at georgeschneider at gmail.com. Is China ripe for a SpaceX-type commercial revolution? To discuss, we have on three guests from the U.S. government's Stippy, Shirley Han, Tom Colvin, and Irina Liu. They wrote the most extensive English-language overview of the Chinese commercial space industry that I have come across. For some context, Stippy is a federally funded research and development center created by Congress to provide independent, unbiased analysis for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. They also support federal agencies that have a science and technology mission. So, why care about space? So many reasons. First, you know, you could just say human nature. There's a, a sense of wonder that we get from better understanding our position in the universe. And this deeply human desire to try to explore the unknown. Concretely, this manifests itself sometimes as scientific progress that base enables. So much of what we know about the world has come from looking out into space and seeing things we don't understand, and just asking, "Why does that happen?" Or from satellites in space looking back into Earth and understanding the dynamics of our planet. And then there's also inspiration, right? And space is big, and space is hard. And if you can build a successful space program. You feel like you can do anything. So space has the capacity to inspire people, to give people pride, and to motivate some of them to pursue careers in STEM. And then you could get a bit more into the nitty gritty, right? There's money to be made. A, a country could potentially boost its GDP if it makes wise decisions regarding the development of space technology. The jobs that are required to perform these missions require a level of mathematical and engineering skill that builds your overall industrial base. There are a couple different elements of geopolitical power that are important. One aspect is that since it's so hard to get to space and operate there, if you have space capabilities, then other countries may want to build a relationship with you. They may want to rideshare on your rocket or perform an experiment on your space station or get access to the science data you're gathering. Space can be a relationship builder. And then the other big geopolitical reason is that it demonstrates a country's ability to set a big goal, mobilize sufficient funding. Build all of the human capital that's necessary, and manage this incredibly complex and long-term undertaking to meet that big goal. So it's a signal to other nations about the resolve that a country has to make and meet very difficult commitments, and that starts to bleed over into defense applications as well. Most space technology is dual use; it can be used for civil or defense purposes. So by developing your space infrastructure for civil purposes. A country is indirectly developing its defense infrastructure, and likewise, by demonstrating its resolve to achieve big space goals, civil space goals, it implicitly demonstrates that country's resolve to achieve its big defense goals. Beautiful and concrete. Why care about commercial space? We generally think of space as roughly three different sort of pillars or sectors. There's civil space, there's defense space, and then commercial space. And within commercial, using acquisition practices that are commercially friendly to try to achieve your space goals, it can increase the pace of innovation. It can reduce the costs of developing the space capabilities, and it can also improve the ability for a nation to have sustained capabilities in space. And by example, you could look at a contrast: a wholly government-owned and operated program. 
is hard to sustain, right? Look at the U.S. Apollo program. We went and achieved most of our goals, but then we turned our attention away from the moon and lost the capability to even go back. It was too costly to sustain, and there were no other customers for lunar exploration than NASA. By contrast, again, you could look at Earth observation capabilities. It started off being wholly government-run, but eventually the government began procuring these systems in a more commercially friendly manner, and private users began paying for access to satellite imagery, and eventually a market was established. And once a robust market appears for something where the government is just one among many customers, then that space capability won't get lost even better. It frees up the government to turn its attention elsewhere and its resources to pursue something more cutting-edge without losing the progress that they've already made. So that's why commercial space is important, with the one big caveat that not all space capabilities are appropriate for commercial space. For any given space capability, there has to be a reasonable pathway to build a customer base around that capability. Otherwise, there's really no commercial interest in developing systems to have that capability. And in those cases, it makes more sense for the government to just design, own, and operate the space systems. Why China in space? What are China's space ambitions and why do they matter? They're making a lot of big news lately, and they have plans that are approximately as ambitious as the plans of the United States. They're running on timelines that nominally aren't too far behind the United States. And so they're clearly trying to do big things and be seen. And then given the strategic importance of space capabilities and China's ambitions, it's just important to pay attention to what they're doing because there are important ramifications, right? What do their new civil space capabilities mean for the future of international partnerships in space? And how will their plans affect China's industrial base and workforce and their overall economic competitiveness? How closely are their civil missions aligned with their defense missions? Will they develop some new capability that we don't have? Is it appropriate to cooperate with them? And if so, how? There are a lot of interesting questions to ask, and the answers have national policy and geopolitical implications. And finally, to our topic at hand today, why China and commercial space? There's already a thriving global marketplace for commercial space goods and services. U.S. companies tend to be leaders in the commercial space sector. So if China develops a commercial space sector, what, if anything, does that mean for the future economic competitiveness of existing space companies? When we did this study in 2019, there were already people following pretty closely China's civil space sector and the defense space sector, but there was relatively little known about the commercial space sector. And this lack of reliable data was leading to rep reputable organizations making exaggerated claims about China's commercial space activities, saying in 2018 they're spending $8 billion to build a commercial space industry or that commercial startups in China are already undercutting U.S. prices by 80 percent. So there was just a lot of misinformation, and we thought it was important to take a closer look to separate a fact from fiction. I'd love to talk a little bit about the methodology of this paper, because you clearly talk to lots of investors, advisors, entrepreneurs in the China commercial space ecosystem. And I was frankly a little surprised that these folks would be totally fine talking to this U.S. government research organization, even though the report was going to be issued publicly. So how did those connect? get made? And what was the experience traveling around China talking to all these folks? We knew it was going to be super important to get uh, as many companies and people to talk to us as possible if we were going to try to get a really good understanding of what's actually happening in China. So we took a few approaches to reach out to companies and individuals. We went to, we attended international conferences like the Ford International Commercial Aerospace Forum in Wuhan, China. 
Uh, we also contacted companies through China's main social media forum, WeChat. And then we were very fortunate that we got a consultant who works in the commercial aerospace industry. And they would introduce us to so many of the companies that we spoke to. And I think we were very fortunate for these individuals to actually speak to us. And they were willing to speak to us, I think, because they were also interested in knowing what the state of the commercial aerospace industry in China is actually like. So when we interviewed them, actually told us, wow, we spoke to more companies than they have towards the end of our interviews. And another reason was that they were actually very hopeful that this report could get the attention from higher up in China and could actually lead to changes that would help their sector grow. So they were hoping that this report would be beneficial for them as well. That's a really interesting bank shot. I've never seen the Chinese industry wanting to get the American government interested in order to get the Chinese government to publish regulations faster than they would have otherwise and open up launch areas and whatnot to a commercial industry. I wonder if it's happened in other areas as well. Semiconductor certainly comes to mind of having the West freak out about something and then the Chinese government pour a lot more money into it. So what are the origins of the Chinese commercial space ecosystem and how much is it a function of seeing the success of uh, SpaceX and to a lesser extent Blue Origin inspiring a generation of frustrated Kasich engineers to go out and, and strike it on their own? There were definitely a commercial space companies in China, um, but most of this new wave really started in 2010 and, and predominantly after 2014. Many of our interviewees noted that they founded their companies or why there's a boom in these companies, they said that they give a lot of credit to companies like SpaceX for making it possible for a commercial space industry to even start in China because investors saw that it was profitable without the success of SpaceX and these other companies. A lot of our interviewees noted that China's commercial space industry might not have received so much support. Irina, can you do a little compare and contrast of CASC, the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, and NASA? What are the similarities and differences between the, the way the two organizations? CASC is this giant gigantic state-owned behemoth in China, whereas NASA is a civil space agency in the U.S. I think CASC is like NASA plus all of NASA's suppliers, like Lockheed, Northrop, and then also add in that they actually sell products too. So there's the China Great Wall Association under CASC that actually sells CASC's products internationally to other customers too. So CASC is like the whole chain in the U.S. and then put it into one organization, which is why it's really interesting to see commercial space pop out from China because other state-owned enterprises in China have managed and controlled from the supply, the production, all the way to the selling of a product to the very end. So it's going to be hard for the commercial-owned companies to find little gaps and niches in the cask system to make a business. Yeah. One of the themes of your report was the level of actual commercialness that space uh, have. Can you talk about the different buckets and the relations that they have to the mothership? I would add to what Arena said before, Cask doesn't do everything, right? Like Arena, you sort of like lumped the entire space real base into Cask. Kasich is a supplier for a number of things. The Chinese Academy of Sciences are very different than like the U.S. Academies of Sciences. They have scientists that are doing research and building hardware. They build satellites, they fly them. 
there are a lot of other suppliers as well. Point taken that Cask is very large and they do a lot of the functions you would see both NASA and private companies in the U.S. doing, but there's still a broader ecosystem than just Cask there. For the report, we drew the, the widest possible definition of commercial, which is basically just, are you willing to sell to people? By that metric, you've got Cask and Kasich and Holy State on Enterprises that are commercial by that definition. But then you could start to drill down by structures that are presented based on who it is that owns you. So an SOE is going to value things differently and move differently than a company that's wholly privately owned. For us, we tried to assess commercialness along a couple different axes, which is are private parties taking risk or is it all the government? Do companies sell their products to someone other than the Chinese government? And if they're state-owned, or partially state-owned, have they demonstrated some independence from their parent SOE? But for the most part, we just drew as inclusive a border as possible. So to what extent is the Chinese government showing or not showing support to this initiative of entrepreneurs striking out on their own and trying to you know, build their own satellites or launch services or what have you? Yes, they are showing support, maybe not as much support as the people in the sector are hoping for. They produced a document in 2014, Document 60, which is what Western media has been shown as the impetus for commercial space sector to really develop in China. When we did our interviews, a lot of individuals told us that commercial space was developing already in China, but Document 60 just opened it up more formally in the sense that it's allowing other international entities to invest in commercial space in China so that investment money is actually coming in. In terms of other forms of support, it hasn't been as solidified. The companies themselves would like more from the government. So either in terms of access to resources or even more funding from the government side, those types of things. I love the little beat in your report where you guys say, oh, document 60, this seminal thing. But half the entrepreneurs we talked to haven't even heard of it, which just goes to show how at a certain point, it's not like the Chinese government's influence on these sorts of things is not like completely dominant for all sectors. Did they laugh at you when you guys are like, oh, look at this thing from 2014? Some of the companies knew what it was and they were like, oh, of course you talk about it because you're from the West and you think that Document 60 is what pushed all of us to start these companies. I think. In Western media and perhaps from just a Western perspective, we tend to assume that the government has so much control over all of its citizens and all of its businesses in China, when in actuality, we're not giving much agencies to the actual entrepreneurs themselves. And this is not just with the commercial space program. I think this is probably across a lot of different industries. So then when we talk about Document 60, they're like, oh, yeah, it's helpful to have Document 60 supporting us, but we would have done all of the activities we've pursued without Document 62. We don't need this explicit permission from the government. Yeah, it's difficult because in the U.S., NASA, different corners of the Department of Defense are key initial suppliers to companies that are starting to get th their feet wet in this space. Which sectors of the Chinese commercial space system are leading and lagging as compared to their, their Western competitors? We wrapped this up in mid-2019, but... At that point, I don't think we saw any Chinese commercial space companies ahead of U.S. or other Western type companies, even though they were aspiring to do many similar things. Clearly, the government is, is stepping in here. 
and all of the previous plans are being revised or rewritten when it comes to China's new national network. Why does anyone want to have 13,000 satellites in lower third world? There are a bunch of trade-offs for that, right? You need more satellites the lower you want your satellites to operate because they'll overfly locations much quicker and you can have very low latency. I want to be able to send something from my phone to the satellite to your phone as quickly as possible. And if those satellites are really high up, that takes longer. So there's a push to bring things low to get low latency. Clearly, Starlink thinks that's the way to go. But even within the U.S. ecosystem, other people think there isn't a market for it. Elon Musk is on record as saying he wants to be the first company to do this and not go bankrupt. It's still an open question as to whether or not this is the best approach. What's the potential for space Internet? Why even pursue this? I remember just going to very rural places in China and having perfectly fine 4G. Was there something particularly exciting about internet coming from space, aside from it just being really cool? The selling points would be that one, you build the infrastructure once, then you've got it almost everywhere on the globe. If you look at how we try to roll out broadband in the U.S., you have to build cables and things like that out to rural communities. The only communities that get served are the ones that are along the pipes that you've laid. But with something like SpaceX or OneWeb or Viasat or any of these different types of is you put the satellites up there and then all you have to do is buy a dish and you can connect. So it could wind up being cheaper, but that still sort of remains to be seen. Earlier this week, the Verizon cable person showed up and said, your internet sucks, let me fix a cable for you. And the coaxial was from seven years ago and like rats had eaten half through it, which is something I didn't realize was a problem. And I just accepted my shitty internet for the past nine months of COVID. So I, for one, am all for getting my New York City Starlinks, but just goes to show how tricky it is to actually keep this infrastructure um, up and running in a way that you don't get these really unfortunate, frustrating last mile coaxial cable issues. So what is the size of this ecosystem relative to how much investment has gone to American firms? You can think of size in sort of two dimensions. One might be revenues of the industry and the other might be equity investments. We don't have a good sense for the commercial space revenues in China. But back in 2019, when we were looking, revenues were too small to really estimate. People were still trying to figure out what their markets were. We haven't had a chance to follow the sector closely since. So not sure where things are at with that now. On the equity side, we found that funding came from a bunch of different sources. It could be private venture capital. It could be local and provincial national level investment. It could be individuals or state-owned enterprises, even academic institutions like the Chinese Academy of Sciences, banks. In our report, from all those sources, we identified up to 900 million U.S. dollars in Chinese space companies' investments between 2014 and 2018. Bryce has a report that estimates global commercial space equity investment were about $5 billion in 2019, with about $4 billion of that happening in the United States. So we're clearly the bulk. And then of the remainder, China made up roughly half of that funding. So you could say about $500 million in equity investments. But the one thing I would say, though, is that it's not clear what venture capital funding or equity funding in China means. It is not one-to-one -one comparison with what we've got here in the West. Funds for venture capital in China can come from private or government sources, and government-backed equity investments are just qualitatively different than VC investments in the U.S. I would encourage people to look at Lance Noble's work. He's a researcher at Gavacol Dragonomics, and he noted that after the state council limited the issuance of new debt, they basically said provinces, you're capped on the 
the amount of debt you can issue for financing your development projects, then equity investments started to become a way for them to circumvent these. We still want to fund our project. We can't issue you a loan directly, but we can make an equity investment and structure it like a loan. So even though it looks like a VC investment, it may actually function like a loan. And the companies that receive these equity loans, they may not be afforded the ability to take risks and innovate like a company that receives VC investments from a Western firm would, because that company may be expected to repay its local government or SOE investors in the near future. Yeah. Another thing you pointed to is the tendency for even more private sector, the uh, Chinese, more money that's more independent from the government VC firms in China to have a sort of shorter investment than the sort of eight to 10 years that an Andreessen Horowitz or whatever would be comfortable with, especially just because in the past few years, it's been so easy to make so much money doing internet and consumer focused type investments. Three years is like you've probably already missed the wave. But if you're looking at building a base company, it's going to take a lot longer to both make the tech and then find the market for whatever you're selling. I thought was a good point you guys highlighted as one of the weaknesses. Coming back to other upsides and downsides, let's talk a little bit about ITAR, what it is, and the kind of second order consequences of it leading these firms not necessarily being quite as dependent on Western technology as, say, ZTE or Huawei are. ITAR, at the broadest level, restricts the ability of other countries to access U.S. technology and restricts our ability in some ways to work with other countries in space, especially. Uh, during our interviews, we were quite surprised to hear that a few of the companies said ITAR and the restrictions that it poses on China, they actually felt that it helped them create technologies because they couldn't rely on U.S. technologies. They had to figure it out for themselves, which was something that we were not prepared to hear. Uh, we didn't anticipate hearing, and uh, a few companies told us that they felt if ITAR didn't exist, maybe China wouldn't be as far along as they would be. Lack of business acumen is one of the points that you guys highlighted as weaknesses of the Chinese commercial space ecosystem. How did it materialize as something that occurred to you? We came up with the wording lack of business acumen, but a lot of the interviewees said this was their weakness. So we're just reporting back what they said. We didn't judge their business acumen. <laughs> They, a lot of them talked about how they come from an engineering background and they just don't have the entrepreneurship skills to identify the market. And this is not just from companies themselves, but also from other commercial space experts that we talked to. Most companies just don't know what their products are going to be and who their customers are. At that time, in 2019, at least when we interviewed them, there was just this consensus that this was their biggest challenge to identify the market and identify their customers because it's not going to be the government. Whereas in the U.S. commercial space quite a bit more mature and developed, and there are very obvious customers. In China, those customers don't exist right now. They have no idea who might want their products. They're trying to get it to B2C, where they want me or you to buy their products too, but they don't know what types of products we might want that come from space. That's why this was our main weakness, because at that time, we thought it was their main challenge. Technologically, funding-wise, I think those were all minor compared to this issue. They're all very hopeful, and they're all very optimistic that they will figure out 
who their customers are going to be. And Arena said, because they're so early in the game right now, her to especially their Western counterparts, they're still working on their technology. They're still working on their R&D. They were very frank with us. They're hoping that their Western counterparts can figure it out. Aside from the obvious customer base that they have in the U.S., they're hoping that companies like SpaceX and OneWeb can figure out how they're going to target everyday people like us. And they're hoping that once they figure it out, they can emulate that. Let's talk about the vision and is the market outside of America and China for commercial space related stuff in the next five to 10 years going to be a battle that's really going to make or break companies or is Argentina buying launch services more of an afterthought given the uh, amount of potential money which Chinese firms and American firms and the Chinese government and the U.S. government have to put into play to this world? We at Stippy have done some work estimating what is the true size of the U.S. commercial space market. And you see a lot of people talking about there's going to be a trillion dollar economy in space by 2040 or something like that. I don't know if Arena or Shirley, you want to say something about how China will fit or where they're going to try to fit in. I imagine, Tom, there's like pretty big cones around those projections just because a lot of these capabilities are still getting developed and the markets are still being realized. Starlink has, what, a thousand customers right now or something like that. There's certainly, I imagine, an outcome in which all this stuff hits and it does revolutionize telecommunications or something. You do get on the upper side of those estimates or, you know, one web doesn't work and and then you hang around that 100 or maybe $200 billion market size. As other countries like developing nations start to want to pursue their own space programs. And you see this coming out with a lot of new countries wanting to have their own satellite in space. They might have a Chinese company manufacture and launch their satellites because it might be at a cheaper price. It might be subsidized by the government compared to U.S. commercial companies, a satellite for Ethiopia or something. But these new governments might develop their own space programs, especially when they see the international prestige linked to space programs with the U.S. and China. So that's also a new market, but it's also uncertain. No one knows how many governments would want to want if there's even any use for all of these countries having their own satellite or not. But that is something that the companies did talk about as, oh, if we're international, we would go international in this route where we would focus on developing nations, not on nations that already have space capabilities. It's really interesting, the tension between doing space because it looks cool and it's national prestige versus, oh, actually, we really want better weather predictions or something that's much more tangible. Certain companies, certain countries like the U.S. and China can afford having creative, less aggressive stuff. Though maybe it's this sort of thing where if the cost gets, this is like a cheap path to prestige for the Ethiopias of the world. So in the appendix, the report that we put out, we do provide a bit more background on exactly what Arena and Tom had, had talked about, which is China is selling satellites and other things to governments in developing nations, but it's mostly cask and through a great wall. So it's not individual smaller startup companies that we're seeing show up in the past five to eight years. It's a completely different market, but that when they're getting satellites from China um, or, or those bigger launches um, from cask, 
The biggest reason is that China, the government is providing them with different options to be able to have a space program that they otherwise wouldn't. The companies that we did speak to, they very much said they're not part of that game. They're trying to figure out who their customers are because they're edged out of those governments, nation to nation type of deals and transactions. We have two types of commercial space sector really happening here, which is the government on China's side is trying to appeal to other governments. And then you have these uh, smaller startup companies that are trying to find their own niche, um, who their customers are. Sure. Coming into the 2019 Chinese New Year, Hongwang Satellite was trying to market these Earth observation images as one of a kind and try to get people to buy this image for their relatives for Chinese New Year's instead of Hongbao. And it costs about 800 RMB per picture. I don't know. And then when we talk to these companies, they're like, yes, this is why we lack this acumen. Because we have no idea who is going to buy this. Any other closing thoughts? The one thing I just wanted to highlight, how all the launch companies sound like the same company, where it's like LandSpace, OneSpace, LinkSpace. All of their English names have the word space and then usually one syllable with it. I feel like it's very emulatory of SpaceX. So it shows the influence of well-marketed and well-known and well-branded company U.S. has influenced, or at least their English names of all of these companies. When we were first doing this project, I just remember we were talking about all the companies and we were like, no, that company did not do this. Actually, I'm talking about a different company. You need to keep up with all of the different English names. One of the other things to mention on the the launch sector too, is that it's important to note that everyone who's made it to orbit has done it with a solid rocket motor, which is much easier than using a liquid rocket. That's what SpaceX uses. That's what Blue is going to use. We still haven't seen anyone make orbit with a liquid rocket. If you want to do anything big in space, you need solid engines. And China's commercially not there yet. Arena, Shirley, Tom, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. This was fun. Ancora basta la tortura 
so come si fa, come si fa, sulla col tanga te lo strapperei via. Tu mi fai impazzire, sì tu mi fai impazzire 